You're listening to the Deep in the Tank podcast with Chris Kidwell and Sam Glover. Sam, a lot has happened in the past week uh, since we talked last. In fact, uh, last Tuesday, about the time we got done talking, just a few hours after that, something happened out your way. Um, kind of got a little bit worried for you. Your county, I think it was, at the very least. Correct. Uh, had a tornado come through. How's the recovery uh, gone from that so far? Well, it's been really interesting. Uh, Tornadoes aren't anything new, of course. When you live in Northeast Mississippi, inclement weather can range from heavy thunderstorms to tornadoes with some regularity. But um, a lot of people were freaking out. And you weren't the only one that called me or texted me to check in. But um, um. Tishomingo is a part of Tishomingo County. The names, the county seat is Iuka. I don't know why, probably because it was the largest city at the time. But uh, essentially, I live on one end of Tishomingo County. Tishomingo is on the other end of the county. So thankfully, uh, me and mine weren't affected. But um, uh, there was some damage. A local Dollar General was pretty heavily damaged. Uh, that's uh, in some places, that'll be a bigger deal than in others. But um, I, recovery uh, seems to be going fairly normally. Uh, and things like this have been happening a little more frequently, really. Uh, last year, only only a few months ago, really, uh, there was some storm damage that got pretty bad. Uh, and then even in uh, October, we had uh, what could only be described as a tropical depression that had somehow managed to make its way to our area. And that caused a great deal of uh, consternation, we'll say. Mm -hmm. Uh, For point of reference, it actually knocked out our uh, Walmart supercenter. You might say, whoa, but um, as a point of reference for that, uh, the last time that business was completely shut down was a massive ice storm in 1994 so yep they uh you know even even in the midst of this uh this coronavirus one of the things that i've heard said and one of the things i've repeated myself is you know walmart's not closing through all this they just they don't close um right and so for something to actually shut them down is impressive it's the same with waffle house by the way uh, and it's so that's why it's so you, jarring you say that but um, Are you not? yeah we actually uh we uh we measure natural disasters based on uh mm-hmm. waffle house there's the waffle house yeah. index yeah and uh 538.com uh, has done a pretty good job of chronicling uh the history of the waffle house index if you will uh, but they've shut down Waffle House in this coronavirus has shut down. Uh, I think late last week, they shut down 365 of their uh, just shy of 2000 locations stateside um, uh, amidst all this. And so it's a, uh, it's a pretty clear indication that this is something to take serious. I mean, if you've not heard of this before, if you hadn't heard of this before, you might think that's a silly stat, but I mean, if you called Waffle House today, uh, and it's not in the middle of a coronavirus panic. So let's say you called them three months ago, uh, and you were to ask them, you know, when do y'all, uh, or when are y'all open? When do y'all close today? What, however you want to phrase it. 
they'll simply reply by saying, we never close. And by and large, they're right. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it, it's, it's an interesting stat to follow uh, what causes Waffle House to close because even, even some hurricanes don't do it. Uh, but pandemics cause some to close and, uh, you know, the occasional really bad storm will too. So also right after uh, a tornado, you uh, woke up the next morning, an older man, I think. Is that right? I, I did. I did. Um, 27 doesn't feel a whole lot different from 26. I'm not going to lie. Yeah, well, happy, uh, happy belated birthday. Um, well, thank you. And you all of you it... listeners, I'm sorry to interrupt you. You can, you can, you can wish me a happy birthday by liking our page and subscribing to our podcast. That would be great. And by the way, I, I don't know if you saw, uh, but when we publish this, we're going to publish it saying that we're available on a bunch of different platforms. Now we have several platforms, uh, Anchor takes care of setting us up on those platforms. So we're available on like six or seven different platforms now. So you can subscribe to us on all of those things. Uh, and once a week or so, get an email, get seven emails uh, saying that our podcast is up and you can listen to it seven times on seven different platforms or, or something like that. So it boosts so happy, our numbers. Yeah. Happy, happy birthday. Um, remember, if you love Sam, uh, you'll, you'll do that. So, uh, and then it was either Thursday or Friday of last week. I forget exactly when it happened, uh, but the stimulus bill finally passed and finally got signed. Uh, and you know, it, it's, I, I was talking to you briefly before we started recording. I don't know that this is the most important piece of le- legislation to pass, um, in the past decade. I do know that it is the largest piece of legislation to pass in the last decade as far as money is concerned um, and as far as the immediate uh, need, the urgency uh, with which this is this was passed. Um, how do you feel, Sam? And I think I know the answer, but I'm asking anyway. How do you feel about the government committing to spend $2 trillion additional dollars? Um, I'd feel a lot better about it if uh, over a trillion of it weren't going towards things that you have to ask why or why do we give the money anyway? Give me some examples. Uh, the Kennedy Center, I believe uh, Amway. Is it Amway or Amtrak that is getting... Uh, <laughs> there is some country, some company, excuse me, that starts with AM that's getting... Uh, money from this bill. Let me uh, let me fact check live so I don't get something wrong here. Sure, I really hope it's Amtrak, uh, which I believe Amtrak Amtrak may be like a private public type deal uh, where it's subsidized. Is their their public transportation or their transportation subsidized for, by the government, like railways uh, out on the East Coast, especially? I th- I think that's right. Uh, Amway is one of these multi-level marketing companies, and so I would rather... Yeah, it's Amtrak, then. Yeah, I was going to say, I was going to... I would probably have blown a gasket had the government decided to give money to a pyramid scheme. Uh, Every company is a pyramid scheme if you pull out enough strings. Okay, well, you know... (laughs) 
you know there there are some that are more clearly that way and you're don't don't get me going on that aspect um but yeah they're they're thankfully not giving money to to amway uh that that you scared me there for a minute um yeah here's the thing normally i'm not and i think you'd agree I'm, i'm not in favor of the government typically ever deciding to spend that kind of money um but if they're going to spend it, uh, I don't necessarily mind a couple of things. One, I don't necessarily mind the idea that this situation is different. And if there's an understanding in the legislation, which as far as I can tell, there is that this is a one-time thing, that a lot of this outside of the some of the unemployment benefits are, uh, you know, this is a one-shot deal. And even the unemployment stuff, I think, is a four-month uh, outer limit on it. Right. Um, I, I say the unemployment benefits, the additions to the unemployment benefits. They're not just completely scrapping unemployment uh, in four months. But when it comes to them spending the money, I, I can appreciate that this is a one-time thing uh, to meet a situation that the country hasn't faced in at least 100 years. Um, and I can also appreciate if you're going to spend that money, you might as well give it back to taxpayers. Um, you know, if you're, if you're going to spend the money at all, that's the one situation, uh, you, you see occasionally states and I mean, very occasionally, but you'll see occasionally states with tax surpluses, uh, giving refunds back to their constituents, re, uh, to their citizens, to their residents. And I don't mind that, uh, now granted the U S is very clearly not doing this because of a surplus, um, the, the U.S. is as in debt as it has ever been right it's now. Always. Is it? We're I think we're north of twenty trillion in debt right now. Is that oh, right? Yes. Oh yeah. yes, definitely. And, and so, you know, I don't mind them giving money back to residents, but yeah, a few of those things made me raise my eyebrows. And and I appreciate the arts as much as anyone. I mean. I went to school for music and I, I certainly value those things, but 25 million to the Kennedy center just seems strange. Um, right. It seems very strange. I do wonder if there are some more creative ways they could have given money back to residents other than just a strict refund. Um, you know, if I, uh, you know, it's something where, there's been talk for years and years, especially on the left of, uh, forgiving student debt. And obviously I'm a little biased with that. Um, but you want to talk about something that would galvanize the economy, uh, you know, cancel student debt, or at least cancel a good chunk of it and see what that does uh, for you, especially for our generation. Uh, Well, it'll do that, but then it will also make companies kind of look at that and say, yeah, we're never giving loans for that sort of thing again. Sure. Sure. Um, You know, it's, I'm, I, I can appreciate the fact that it would have some pretty significant negative consequences. Uh, I I understand that. I'm looking at the debt clock right now and these numbers just blow my mind. We're at 23.61 trillion in debt. Um, and so I can appreciate the fact that there would be there would be some negative consequences of that. But if you're already going to spend that kind of money anyway, I just wonder. And, and I'm not saying that specifically, but if there are some more creative ways you could have gone about doing that. 
you could have gone about getting rid of, or not getting rid of, but providing more Americans with with money, uh, you know, access to money at the very least. I don't know. I'm looking at some of the details per CBS News, and I've got two details that are my favorites. One, measure prohibiting companies owned by the president and his family from receiving federal relief. Always got to stick it to the orange man. Mm-hmm. And $17 billion for businesses critical to maintaining national security. The neocons and their defense contract buddies will never go broke. Yeah, and that that's the thing is did they need did they need the extra money? Um and what is that specifically earmarked for? Is there a, is there a separate provision in there? Because when you talk about national defense uh, and security, you, that money could, in theory, depending on how it's stipulated, uh, be used to address this pandemic. Um, and and if that's the case, fine. Uh, but if it's but... just hey, hey, we're going to you know add pork to the bill and give the military more money off the back of a bill that has to pass. Uh, well, well, it can yeah. do any of those things, but it can also fund sending CIA agents to Central America to, uh, to you know, spice up drug wars down there well. or to the Middle East to, to honeypot terrorist cells. It can do all sorts of spooky things that make you wonder, wait, are we allowed to do that? Yeah, well, you, uh, you, you, you see, <laughs> you see one of those stories come up feels like once a month. Um, and it's just a matter of who the we is. The we will sometimes change. Uh, are we allowed to do that? Are we allowed to, be involved in these places doing these things uh are we allowed to uh surveil literally everyone um you know there's there's lots of fun stuff that you could ask that question about um but yeah there's i i that that those are the things i don't know because the bill is what is it between eight and nine hundred pages long it's it's just shy of nine hundred pages because because so we can't you, just have line item bills that are like 10 pages long and specifically worded. No, no, can't do that. Um, I do. I did want a thing of our president picking up a portfolio and showing his signature on a 900 something page document. I think that'd be pretty great for him to hold up a textbook. Um, but when, when it comes to that, those are the things that I wonder. And, uh, you know, news agencies aren't going to, put all the stipulations in uh, and I don't blame them because at that point just republish the bill but you know when, when it comes to some of that language you know okay I, I can see where some of it is potentially a little um, off-putting as far as not being directed at the reason we're involved in this in the first place to be clear uh, I don't mind the federal government setting aside whatever money it, it deems necessary to set aside to fight this because this is this is something where we are going to run out of resources if we're not careful. Uh, it's all the other stuff that is problematic in the bill. Um, it's it's setting aside resources for things that right now truly do not matter. Um, 
I, uh, <clears throat> I I was listening. There was a TED Talk posted, I think, yesterday, uh, and it was just a video conference with with Bill Gates. Uh, you know, and of course, y- you may have seen uh, five years ago uh, after I think it was after either Ebola or Zika. Um, Bill Gates got on a stage. He had a TED Talk that lasted less than ten minutes, and he basically said, "We're not prepared for the la- for the next pandemic." We're not prepared for an upper respiratory uh, or just a respiratory disease. Um, And unless we throw a ton of money at the problem, basically, we're not going to be prepared. And it it could be catastrophic. And so after he, you know, after he offered that and after everything that's happened in the past few months, he's uh, pretty in demand right now. And to his credit, he wasn't smug or anything like that. I, I, get the impression that he's not terrifically smug at all. Right. Uh, he, you know, for being at one point the richest man on earth, he, he seems more down to earth than I would think someone with his stature and wealth would be. But uh, he gets on there on the video conference. And one of the things uh, that uh, the two interviewers asked him, and I forget their names, but one of the things the two interviewers asked him, was, you know, you do a lot of work with climate change, which which he does. Um, he's in he's at the forefront of the effort to sort of, you know, make changes in policy, make changes in uh, behavior, and also fund research for uh, as it pertains to climate change. And he was asked, you know, how's this affecting that? And he basically said, look, we're putting most of that on hold right now. Right. Um, we're putting most of that on hold for the purpose of trying to put all the resources we can toward this disease. We're not completely abandoning that, um, you know, and of course, different people have different thoughts about climate change and, and whatnot, but, you know, put, putting, putting the politics of that aside for a second, he said, we're having to put that, we're having to put most of that aside because this is so much more important. So he, uh, you know, it's, it, it was something to me, uh, it, it's something that stuck out that he was pretty upfront about basically saying we, we've got to do whatever we can to deal with this right now. And so, you know, I can appreciate that attitude. And like I said, anything in the bill that deals specifically with the pandemic, um, I don't find problematic. It, as far as I'm concerned, the pandemic is an issue of national security and, and the government at least the executive branch feels the same way too. And so, uh, you know, I, I don't mind it, them at all taking whatever resources uh, they need to deal with that specifically. It's just, I guess there's a couple of problems. There's all the other stuff in the bill, uh, you know, and, and the president pointed out that some of that was compromises. The Kennedy center specifically was a compromise. Um, and also, you know, when it comes to all the other stuff in the bill, uh, you know, if we weren't $23 trillion in debt, then coming up with the money wouldn't be as difficult right now. The lines of credit would be a little bit better, um, at least in theory. And, you know, spending this kind of money wouldn't be as uh, problematic as it is when you're already so much in debt. Right, there is a point at which 
Like if you're already that far down the hole, what's digging a few feet further down going to do? Well, and, and this is something that, you know, every country on earth uh, is, I think we're officially every country on earth is dealing with this now. Um, you know, this is something where, you know, you, you, you have to take care of it. Um, you know, whatever the, whatever the fallout is, you know, be it adding to a gigantic pile of debt, you have to take care of it. You have to do what you can, but, um, some of those issues are compounded by the fact that you're already so much in debt and, you know, you're, I mean, it's going to affect, uh, the ability to address that debt and address the issue moving forward too, because, uh, with, with the economy, um, sort of in the tank right now, uh, that affects tax revenue, which affects everything else. And, but I'm not one of these people who think that the economy is of the utmost importance, uh, certainly not over human lives. I've seen a few awful takes on Twitter with regard to that, but it's worth noting what the economic fallout is and what the long-term impact of all this is moving forward because it's not pleasant uh, the longer this lasts. So the longer it lasts, the worse it's going to be moving forward, which is why it's in the best, another reason it's in the best interest of the country to do what it can to take care of it. Now it's why the quarantining guidelines are so important uh, in addition to, you know, saving human lives, which is, uh, of the utmost importance beyond that, you know, the, if this is a long-term sort of protracted thing, then it becomes more and more problematic to the point of, you don't know what it's going to look like on the other side, even two and three years after the fact. Right. And the trouble with the whole comparisons about, well, which is more important, human lives or the economy, um, People, uh, because uh, different parts of our brain handle different kinds of reasoning, uh, people tend to think of the economy as an abstract thing, and it's not. Like, good economics is not abstract. It's just observing human behavior and human input and human output. And so... The bad comparisons will kind of pit them against one another. I think really good comparisons will recognize, okay, look, here's the thing. The economy is a distinctly human thing. And if we've got people dying in the streets, the economy will suffer. And if the economy suffers inordinately, people aren't able to get the things they need to survive. So I, I, I sympathize with the people saying that we shouldn't value the economy over human life but at the same time it's one of those okay but eventually you need to be able to acquire necessary goods and services so well and and there's a couple of things with this you know we're we're already seeing some of that fallout now um you know we've got friends, members of our congregation, family members who are already being affected by the economic fallout. We, we know people who have had their hours slashed. We know people who have been furloughed. We have, we know people who in management have been uh, asked to either lay off or furlough some of their employees. Um, you know, it, 
We know uh, contract type workers who cannot get work right now. Right. Uh, and none of that is good. Uh, and all of that, you know, you want to talk about public health. That's a part of that too. Um, you know, some of that means insurance benefits get slashed or cut entirely to fight the pandemic that you would need insurance to fight. Um, right. At least on a personal level, uh, you know, especially for your, you know, for your older workers, you know, maybe in your, in your forties and older, I say older, uh, you know, that's probably what, like two thirds of your workforce, um, right. at least half, probably closer to two thirds. Um, 40 and up is about where special protections for age discrimination start in most like as far as like work legislation goes so right but when it comes to uh being laid off it's pretty you know it's pretty indiscriminate outside of uh time served with the company right and so you know it's something where if you're the last person on you're probably the first person off um you know, th- those are all things that we're, we're seeing that fall out now, uh, you know, with the economy and the impact that it has on, has on the lives of individuals. Um, you know, now there's a few places that are doing really well. I think we mentioned last week that grocery stores are doing pretty well. And sure enough, last Wednesday night, late last Wednesday, or maybe Thursday, I forget. I go to my local grocery store again and chat with the guy. He's probably, I don't know, 18 or 20 working a cash register at you know, 11 something at night on a weeknight. And, and I asked him, you know, I said, how are you doing through all this? And he said, man, I'm doing great for the first time in my life. I feel like I've got job security and he's not wrong. Um, he's not wrong, but by and large, the economic fallout is already being felt. Um, you know, and, and that impacts those individuals and that impacts the, the, the public health. Um, and then beyond that, you know, with regard to these, the people versus the economy, the best answer for both, the 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 best way possible um, to to put both in check and to fix both is to I, I forget who I heard use the phrase may have been the Shapiro interview with Mike Pence may have been somewhere else. Um, but the best possible outcome is to wave a magic wand over people, get them to freeze in place, maybe move, be sure they're six feet apart from each other, but effectively freeze in place uh, for 14 days and then start moving again. Because at that point, you limit the economic damage to two weeks. Now, that's two weeks of zero, right? right. Um, but it is two weeks. Uh, and you effectively stop the spread of the virus at that point. And so the virus effectively dies off and then you only have a few corner cases of like surface contact. Cause I guess on one of the cruise ships that they found uh, or the cruise ship where they basically had, it was basically a, a test lab for the virus where, you know, you had 700 something people infected and about, uh, Oh, I forget how many of them died as as a result of that, but they found uh, some of the virus uh, that was still live on a surface after 17 days, which is an extreme outer limit for this thing. Right. But that also may have had to do with the climate uh, of the cruise ship itself. 
or however you want to do that. There may be other factors that can't be easily replicated uh, and certainly aren't naturally replicated on, you know, land. And so, you know, when, when it comes to that, that's the best solution for both um, is to just simply freeze everything because at that point the economic fallout is limited um, and it's a relatively short-term thing. You know, this is doubly true if you get people... And I'm not suggesting, please don't, uh, you know, mishear me, uh, whoever's hearing, don't, don't mishear me and, and think that, you know, that these people ought to be compelled to, to do otherwise by governing authorities. But this is doubly true if, you know, employers and those who do have money, those who are well-to-do, those who, uh, maybe are worth significant amounts of money understand what they can do to help relative to at the very least their companies. And you're seeing this by and large, um, a lot of places, you know, every major sports organization, I think, except one in the U S every uh, of the four major sports, all of them, except one have committed to, uh, paying their, uh, their staff, their employees, um, through all this, you know, like the NBA and the NHL were canceled. Every every team in both leagues, I think, except the Boston Bruins, have committed to paying like their event staff and all that. Um, they they don't legally have to do that, right. uh, but it's something where the owners recognize that they have a chance to help people and also, you know, do their small part to help the economy too. And that's not necessarily the first reason to do it, but it is a reason. Um, you know, now the, the Boston guy is coming down uh, under a lot of flack. Uh, I think his last name is Jacobs. He's worth 3.3 billion. And he basically laid off all of his hourly employees with one week paid leave. Um, and it's something, like I said, I don't know that government needs to come in and compel him to pay them at the same time. You want to talk about mitigating the impact of all this. It's. You know that that's a way to do it, not not the government doing that, mind you, but him doing that out of his own uh, volition. Um, and so that that's something you you're seeing that. I saw that uh, the Texas Roadhouse CEO is forgoing his entire salary and all his bonuses. Um, you see other bosses, other CEOs, other uh, other people in management doing similar things. Um, that's one way to mitigate all this uh, is to be sure the people that will not otherwise be able to get by without a paycheck and can still get by. That's part of the reason the stimulus bill exists to begin with. But, um, you know, if, if that were combined with everyone actually doing the quarantine thing, then we would be through this uh, before the end of April. As it stands, it that doesn't look like it's going to happen. I did. Did you see the numbers the White House put out yesterday as far as, um, as far as what they anticipate? I, I haven't just yet. They said, uh, best case scenario in the country is somewhere between one hundred thousand and two hundred thousand deaths. That and that I believe is directly from uh, Dr. Fauci, who, by the way, has just been great during this whole thing between 100,000 and 200,000 deaths. Um, 
with a peak somewhere in late April, early May, more than likely. Uh, To be clear right now, we have, according to the data that I've been using, uh, 177,452 total confirmed cases and 6,000, no, excuse me, 3,440 deaths. Um, And so best case scenario, that's... And that's in the United States or worldwide? That's in the U.S. Okay, 100 to 200,000, good grief. I'm trying to look up uh, data on how uh, past uh, outbreaks were affected. Um, Let's see. Uh, Spanish influenza was uh, 675,000 in the U.S. Okay. uh, SARS had no uh, no deaths in the U.S. H1N1 had uh, twelve thousand. So how many how many did you say from the Spanish flu? Uh, from the Spanish flu, uh, just from uh, in the U.S. six hundred and seventy five thousand. But that was with five hundred million global cases. Yeah. So six hundred seventy-five thousand. That's against. I'm. I'm gonna go a year later or two years later, I guess. Um, and that's against the U.S. Census uh, recorded one hundred six point five million people in nineteen twenty. So that is a death rate against the total population of. Is that 0.6%? Give or take. Yeah. So. Now compared to that, the uh, like number of cases, it was around 2%. But Right, right. But that's, I mean, 0.6%. The death rates for COVID-19 have been uh, projected anywhere from one6 to 3.4%. Yeah. And some of that's been skewed by just lack of complete data say, sets. Mm-hmm. Some of it's also been uh, skewed by the fact that if you think that China is being truthful about their data, then I have oceanfront property in Arizona that you might want to mm-hmm. buy from me. So, yeah, yeah, that's and that's the thing is I I don't trust the Chinese government to be honest about any of this. Um, you know, it's it's something where they very clearly tried to cover up uh, the the news of the virus. They tried to cover up the effect, and then in what was it, mid to late January, they went under quarantine, and we effectively got no new news from them uh, outside of just some little tidbits of things. Uh, you know, in the couple of months since, no, I don't, I don't trust the. Uh, I don't trust the Chinese government to be truthful. Here's the other thing. Um, I don't trust, and I guess in a more positive way, I don't trust the total number of cases. I think it's way more, at least stateside, uh, than what we have because of lack of testing. And like you mentioned, people just not getting tested, even if they did have have access because they don't see a need. Um, Because for them, they may just, they may not feel any worse than they would with a seasonal flu. Sure. Um, and those people don't necessarily need to be 
tested. I think it helps with data and I think it helps with containing the spread, but on a personal level, uh, those people, if they, you know, if you get the flu, if you get the flu and you know, you have the flu and you're not dealing with significant, uh, you know, respiratory issues to the point where you're having difficulty breathing, you know, if you genuinely believe that you have the flu based off your symptoms and you don't need additional help, then when you go to the doctor, what they're going to say is, you know, drink plenty of fluid and monitor your temperature. Um, they're not going to, I mean, there's no medicine for that. Uh, other than Tamiflu, if you, if you catch it in the first, you know, 48 hours, you can start taking Tamiflu. And even then that just mitigates symptoms. Right. And they might recommend Pedialyte if you're having difficulty getting everything you need and sure. keeping it down. But sure. Maybe uh, that. But when it comes to cases, cases is largely <clears throat> irrelevant here. Um, at least until we get to a point where there's a 24 hour turnaround on data, which we're not there yet. Uh, we're no. close. Um, but until uh, rapid response tests are, uh, are the norm and until they start being utilized basically everywhere, um, the total number of cases uh, is largely irrelevant. The total number of deaths is sort of the, sort of the big thing here because your deaths uh, set a hard bottom limit as far as, or yeah, a hard, a hard limit against um, what you can expect uh, because, you know, I, the, the total cases only matter in light of deaths uh, because you don't know how many cases you have, but you do know how many deaths you have. You do know uh, exactly at least stateside, how many deaths you have with regard to coronavirus with a little bit of lag on, on data, of course, as you know, new reports come in and uh, autopsies are done in cases where it's unclear, um, you know. But when it comes to that data, you, you got to be very careful what you trust. Total number of hospitalizations is also an important stat here, and I don't have that pulled up in front of me. Uh, but checking deaths against hospitalizations gives you an idea of okay, well, if you do end up in the hospital as a result of this. Uh, what are your, what are your chances of survival? Um, you know, cause if, if this is going to be a thing where for most people, they're not going to be, ha they're not going to have to be hospitalized for most people. It's just going to be like the flu. And for some people, they're just not going to have symptoms at all. Then the total number of cases doesn't do a lot for you. Um, but if you end up in the hospital, then all of a sudden, okay, you've got a much better idea of what the data is like. And like I said, I don't have those stats pulled up in front of me um, as far as hospitalizations, but uh, that that's sort of the, uh, that's sort of where right now, given the lag in data, uh, given the lag in testing, uh, those I think are probably the only two real reliable uh, pieces of data you can use it as far as what's happening stateside. Um you know, because deaths we're absolutely sure about and hospitalizations with regard to coronavirus. You know, if you've got people ho hospitalized for coronavirus, uh, they have almost definitely tested positive for it. And so, you know, you may have people who get hospitalized and then find out after the fact they have uh, coronavirus. I, I know of at least one case, uh, one person I know personally uh, who's been in that exact situation. But, you know, it's something where we, we've got to be careful with what data we're trusting. Right. Um, and it's part of the reason that 
the CDC and Dr. Burks and, and a few others have really stressed, um, you know, these social distancing things because you, you're not the, uh, you know, you, you have this invincibility complex, complex, if you will, where you don't think it can happen to you until it does. So you, you don't think you're the, you know, the, the five percent or whatever, the twenty percent, just depending on whatever numbers you want to go with. You don't think it can happen to you until it does. And then when it does, uh it completely, you know, blindsides you. Um uh so there were a couple of interviews that happened over the weekend um that I think are uh more interesting. Did did you watch the uh, the Sunday special with uh with Vice President Pence and Dr. Burks. I haven't. It is on my to-do list. Okay. Uh, well, I won't spoil it for you or anyone else who's listening, but basically uh, Ben Shapiro sat down via web conferencing. Uh, it's about 40 minutes total. The first 25 or so were spent with uh, VP Pence, and then the other 15 were spent with Dr. Burks. Dr. Burks is the, I forget exactly what her title is, um, uh, I know, oh, she's, uh, I know she's done work with, with AIDS, uh, with, with, uh, relief and support with regard to, uh, combating AIDS. And I know she's sort of an international presence with regards to <coughs> sickness and security. Um, she is the lady up there. When you see the president's press briefing, she's the one lady that's up there on stage, uh, who will occasionally take questions. Um, uh, I've seen a lot of people remark about uh, how they love the scarves that she wears. Uh, and so if if you're one of those people, that, that's who she is. It's Dr. Burks. She's extremely important in the uh, international medical community. Um, and basically just talked about their own, <clears throat> their own, uh, their response to things and, it was helpful. Um, of course, you know, Vice President Pence has done an excellent job of just being level-headed through all this. Uh, I've been very impressed with how he handles, you know, he's handled himself through through all this. Yeah. Um, you know, especially when, you know, there's a lot of people out there in that press briefing each and every single day that would love to see him fail. Oh, yeah, so, definitely. Uh and then the other one I saw, and I didn't expect to like this as much as I did. Um, Trevor Noah uh, had an interview with Dr. Fauci that came out mm, Friday night, maybe. Hmm. Um, now, uh, as, a, as a side note, what we are learning through this, I, I watch a little bit of YouTube, and occasionally I watch clips of some of these talk shows. Um, and what I am learning is that a lot of these guys just aren't very funny. And I already knew that with some of them. Um, but the fact that there's no in-studio laughter or pessimistically no laugh track uh, to go along with their jokes makes it really clear that some of these guys just, just aren't funny. Um, and yet they're still sitting there and still trying to make this a very, very political thing. Um, you know, there's... Uh, there's a few who do so more than others and, and Trevor Noah has made it a political thing. Let's be clear. But one of the things I appreciate is he got Dr. Fauci uh, via web conferencing and it was basically just 
you know, a sit down interview where Trevor Noah just asked a bunch of questions that the general populace would have asked. It, it didn't at any one point in time get political. Um, and it was, you know, hey, what can we expect? What should we do? What are the best steps to take? Uh, you use this language. What does that mean for me? Um, and it was very helpful. And so it, it's almost sort of my go-to uh, when it comes to how serious should I be taking this? If someone were to ask me that, I might just send them that video. It's right. it's very, very helpful. Um, and it was unexpected uh, that it was non-political coming from Trevor Noah, who's made right. his name off the back of himself in a show that has been very political in nature for what, 20 years now. Mm-hmm. And when it's caught criticism for doing so is hidden behind people saying, well, we're not political experts. Yeah. That, that, uh, that started, I think with that, that crossfire interview, uh, uh, from years and years and years ago. You remember that? Vaguely. Yeah. It that was when, uh, hot minute. that was when, uh, Tucker Carlson was on uh, CNN and they had a liberal voice and I guess he represented the conservative voice. And they, uh, the idea was that you would put a celebrity in between the two and just ask them about things. And Jon Stewart uh, sort of turned the tide there, which I I can appreciate sort of the shtick uh, of going onto that show and, proving a point, but that be, that ultimately became the point of the daily show after a little while was just, Hey, we're going to offer political commentary, but you know, we're just a comedy show. And we've seen Trevor Noah pick up that same mantle, John Oliver pick up that same mantle. And even the, uh, the more normalized talk shows, uh, you know, Seth Meyers, Jimmy Kimmel, uh, Stephen Colbert, uh, have all gone that direction now too. And so it was refreshing for me to see um, to see one of those individuals sit down with one of the most important people through this whole thing, who is also working directly with the president on a day to day basis, and not be bombarded with political questions or gotcha style questions or or or, or what have you. Um, right. That, that was minimum, refreshing. Right. Yeah, the minimum amount of orange man bad. Or even Orange Man Rad, because that's not any better, in my view. Necessary is always a good thing. Especially in an era where, and this is going to kind of be my political and social commentary for the week, and I'm going to get it out of my system. A lot of those talk shows, you mentioned that a lot of those people just aren't funny. And it's because they're not trying to be funny anymore. Um, A lot of it now is uh, just as a thought experiment, Think about when you're watching how much there's an applause track as opposed to a laugh track. It's about getting applause now rather than laughter. And because that standard is different, of course, you're going to have a lot more less even jokes and more just kind of lowbrow attempts at, hey, do you get it? I'm making a political statement. Yeah, I... It's frustrating, um, and I get that comedy, uh, especially television comedy, has always been political to some extent. There are some people who will reminisce about the good old days, uh, even though Solomon tells us we shouldn't do that. Um, there are some people who will rest, reminisce about the good old days and say, oh, well, I remember when uh, when 
Johnny Carson, uh, you know, ran this show. And I remember when SNL wasn't quite like this and I, uh, no, they've always been political. It's, um, uh, I think you can argue it was a little bit more even handed back then. Sure. Um, I mean, even, uh, even a little over 10 years ago, I guess, 12 years ago now, uh, during the campaign, uh, during the 2008 campaign, SNL had John McCain and Sarah Palin both on, um, like on the show. Um, and you know, you, there was an understanding there that when it comes to these individuals, we might not want them to be elected. Uh, but you know, they're still worthy of respect to some degree. Uh, you know, Don Rickles was, was great about this. Don Rickles performed at, a at one of Reagan's inaugurations, I guess it is inauguration. Um, and basically made the point there. Uh, I think, I think in the inauguration, I know he did at different roasts that he didn't vote for Reagan. He wasn't ever going to vote for Reagan, but, um, you know, I, I, I think we've lost some of that, uh, uh, you know, some of the basic respect, but it's always been political. Um, no, yeah, definitely. And that, that's what's so, that's part of what's so bothersome about this whole situation is making a political point out of something that shouldn't be at all. And, and I realize we say that uh, a lot to combat criticism, that people will say that a lot when they're criticized over something, especially legitimately. People on both sides do it. Um, you know, uh, we see this with regard to uh, gun control. It comes up every single time there's a shooting. Uh, we don't need to make it political. Well, at some point, we do need to discuss policy. Uh, it might not necessarily be uh, policy, the type of policy you want to discuss, but we do need to talk about policy either with uh, guns or uh, mental health issues or, or whatever it is. But those in- incidents should lead us to talk about policy. Um, I'm going to argue that I think this is the this is this should be one of the exceptions. Um you know, that I don't know how helpful it is um, to constantly criticize uh, the administration who on a national level is responsible, at least in the moment. Now, we might look back retroactively and say, yeah, we could have done better in some areas. Um, and I think there's maybe one area that that's notable right away is that the response should have happened sooner, but that doesn't help in the moment. And it doesn't you know, you're not doing anyone any favors by, you know, bashing people every single night, especially when you don't have to. You, I mean, you got a perfect time to just chill and not have a show. Um, you know, well, but again, stuff. though, if they do that, they don't get applause. And to borrow the words of the inimitable Lady Gaga, I live for the applause. I live for, the, you forgot applause Pause. Live for the applause. Pause. Is it applause? Pause or applause? Applause. Applause. I'm pretty sure. Ah. But I'm not an expert on Lady Gaga or her music, so hey, I mean, nothing against it. Something. Just it's uh, she did a uh, she did a duet record with Tony Bennett a few few years ago that I haven't gone back to listen to yet. I need to do that. That sounds like a lot of fun, actually. But speaking of music, I want to get this out of the way. I want to air the podcast's dirty laundry for everyone to hear. 
um, the intro music. I like it. I do. I was kind of hoping, fingers crossed, I didn't want to like influence the decision, but I was kind of hoping for Chainsaw of Bees by Death Ray Vision as our intro song, though. Yeah, see, um, I went online and I found free music and I picked the very first thing that didn't make me want to rip my ears off. That, and um, that's fair. Like I said, I like it, but I was just sitting there like, if we could just somehow have Chainsaw of Bees, that would be great. Yeah. Well, one of these days I might get around to actually writing something myself, but you know, for the sake of getting, for the sake of getting the pop podcast published uh got that done fast uh yeah, and so right. you know that'd be that'd be good um uh but anyway more you, seriously i was gonna ask you one more question i say one more might not be one more but um what have you sort of shifting this to the church for a second um the vast majority of congregations seem to have sort of fallen in line if you will since the last time we talked uh, with regard to not having services or having extremely limited services, um, you know, trying to fall under that 10 or less mandate that many areas, including Oklahoma, at least um, are being required to fall under. Um, have you noticed outside of that, have you noticed anything else churches are doing in light of this outside of sort of the obvious, Hey, we're, we're streaming our services now. Is there anything either locally or abroad, that sort of picked your interest? Uh, mostly it's been, uh, <clears throat> for for me where I'm at, a lot of our congregations are getting a lot more involved in the online space. I know one of the ministers here is actually putting stuff out more online now, uh, mostly through the church's Facebook page. Uh, some are, and I've only seen like bits and hints of this, but I've seen uh, people trying to make a more concerted effort to coordinate benevolence efforts and the like online and mm -hmm. digitally. Uh, figuring out, you know, hey, you know, these members are relatively healthy, they're younger, and they're willing to go out and get stuff for people that need it, that sort of thing. And um, also an increase in uh, the availability of online giving and things like that, which I am a big right. fan of. Yeah, I, I, in theory, could be. Um one of the my concerns one of my hang-ups with it is most forms of online giving charge not insignificant fees um uh you know two percent doesn't sound like a lot until you realize that if everyone gave online that's two percent of your entire budget that's uh you know even for a small congregation that's i say for a small um you know for a lot of congregations that's for most congregations, it's going to be a few thousand dollars. Um, you know, when I, when I was at Fanger, um, which, you know, Fanger is maybe 30 to 40 residents. Uh, at least it was when I was there 10 years ago. And then maybe as many students coming on Sunday morning. Um, that that budget was about 100000 And so, you know, maybe a little over 100000 but when it came when it came to budgeting, uh, two percent would have been, you know, two thousand dollars. That may be how much they give a missionary in a year, and so that that's my only real concern with that. Uh, I don't know that I have any sort of scriptural objection 
Uh, sure. And you got to, yeah, do have to think about those things. But I mean, I say just, uh, just have a, like a Venmo account and just, (laughs) I I don't know, actually. I'm not an expert. Use cash, cash app. There you Um, go. Generally don't take my advice on anything seriously (laughs) and your life will be better. But, um, moving on that, uh, you mentioned kind of going in line. I feel like I kind of struck while the iron was cold because after I wrote my article, just no one was arguing about whether we should assemble anymore. And it made me kind of sad. And so it's just like, I put all this time and effort in and just, and, and I can't, there's no one to own with facts and logic out there. Well, you know, I, you know, I can appreciate your desire to want to own people. Um, in a metaphorical sense, in a metaphorical sense, not a literal sense, to be clear, Sam Glover is not a proponent of slavery, but, um, yeah, generally I'm not, but when it comes to, uh, when it comes to this, I I think articles like that still serve a purpose. First of all, there's, there's an artifact because, you know, this likely will not be the last thing uh, that happens that prevents us from worshiping in our lifetime. And as you know, the internet is forever. Oh yeah. Um, but then beyond that, I, I think even if the public uh, argumentation has died down, a lot of people are still struggling with this. That right. This is, this is something that people are going to do. I think I mentioned this last week. They're going to submit to their elders on this. Uh, they're going to do what's in the, best interest of of the church which at this point i i would argue on this particular issue is keeping the members safe but um when it comes to articles like that they serve a purpose in as much as they help inform people who are struggling with this uh and perhaps uh relieve people of some uneasiness regarding the decisions they have to make with regard to services um you know, I don't, I don't know that uh, there are probably some people who are enjoying this. There are probably some people who uh, genuinely think this is better um, than uh, than what they had been doing maybe a month ago. But I think those people are few and far between. I think the vast majority of people want to be back in service, want to be uh, back, you know, sitting in the pew or those weird little connected chairs, um, whatever your local congregation has it. I don't know, but it's, it's something where they want that and they can't have that right now. And it could last a while. I mean, uh, the CDC just extended their guidelines through the end of April. That's another four Sundays. Um, you know, this is something that could take a while and, you know, having something out there that sort of help eases that, uh, eases that tension uh, I, I don't think is is bad at all, even if it's maybe not as current as it would have been a week ago. Um, and so I appreciate your writing that, uh, you know, and it's it's something where that argumentation's out there moving forward too. Um, right. You know, there are going to be other issues that come up. Hopefully, nothing like this, and hopefully not even on a national level, but other things come up. Um, you know, we, we, most places have one or two weather related things a year or so. Um, 
you know, where even if they don't cancel, they at least have to make a decision. Um, I think one of the things I've noticed is, uh, like you mentioned with the online presence, uh, you see a lot, and I mean a lot of congregations, but also individuals posting. Um, seen a lot of people just go live from their Facebook page or personal Facebook page for different devotionals. Um, I've not, uh, I've not been doing that personally. I, I pre-record a few things and upload them through the Facebook page. Um, but you know, you, you've seen a lot of that. I, I don't know if you've seen the series that digital Bible study, uh, has been putting out that, that Facebook page. Uh, but they're host, they're hosting like a mini lectureship of sorts where uh, each night of the week, uh, e- each weeknight outside of Wednesday, they'll have either two or three lessons uh, where some preacher in some part of the country will get on and preach a sermon and there'll be a short break. And then another one will log on through that same account and live stream a sermon and there'll be a short break and you'll see it again and you know, a few few guys you might recognize have been on there. Neil Pollard preached from there. He was one of the first ones. Uh, Hiram Kemp uh, preached. Who's that? <laughs> yeah. Uh, who's Hiram? Right. Um, yeah, there have been several. Uh, and that's going on. I'm not sure if they have an end date on that. I know they had at least... Uh, they have at least 40 speakers lined up for that. Um, and if you assume 12 a week, uh, and each speaker speaking one time, you're talking, you know, four weeks and we're only in the middle of week two. So, you know, it's, there's a lot of good that's coming out of this, um, disruption breeds adaptability and, uh, you know, limitations breed creativity. And so what you're seeing is the church is adapting to its situation and, uh, individuals are being creative in how they can get the gospel out there and how they can, you know, remain connected. Um, I think that's helpful uh, to see so many people doing that. Um, you know, and it's something where I'm trying to take advantage of it. Frankly, I can't take advantage of everyone and everything doing all those things because there's so much of it. What I would like to see is uh, a lot of these people who are doing this right now and a lot of these congregations who are making more of an effort to continue doing that moving forward. Um, you know, if we do this for the next two months and then we stop doing it, uh, we're going to stop reaching people who we have primarily reached through uh, these endeavors we've taken on starting within the past couple of weeks or so. Um, and I, I think it's worth keeping in mind that you know, these things that we're doing, they don't, they don't have to stop. Some of them are going to change. Obviously we're going to have Lord willing, we get through this. We're going to have services on the other side of this, but uh, most of this doesn't have to change. Doesn't have to, uh, doesn't have to expire if you will. Uh, And, you know, for those of us that are trying to do these things, it's, it's worth keeping in mind because, we don't know what type of impact it could have moving forward. We don't know what type of impact we're having right now. Um, but, you know, we know that the impact is zero if we stop doing it. Right. Uh, and especially that idea of it being zero if we stop. I don't think that churches especially, at least in our little neck of the religious woods, I don't think they fully understand just how much reach they can have digitally. 
especially because while yes, there is curation and things like that, it's a lot easier to get your voice out there than people realize. I mean, for goodness sake, we're on, you said six or seven different podcast providers. That's wild. Like it 20 years ago, that couldn't have happened. And so the idea that we could just leave this on the table, to me at least, it's insane. It's something you don't understand the reach you can have. Um, like you said, with with the uh, with that. So I've got some buddies of mine um, out here, the members at Central. They they do their own podcast. It's the uh, it's the top of the dude chain podcast, uh, and I've been on it a couple of times, and it's uh, it's fun. Um, just, just a couple of guys, uh, just a couple of guys doing their thing, but they, uh, (laughs) so they have a random base of listeners and no, no connection to this base outside of the podcast, no outside connection. Um, I forget if they're in Sweden, uh, or Finland or Norway, one one of those three, uh, one of those three, what we call them, Scandinavian countries. Um, you know, it's something where you, you don't know what kind of reach you, you have. Like you said, you don't know where you're reaching. Um, you don't know how many people because views, especially for videos, views do not mean very much. Um, right. You know, your total number of views, like I... I saw, I think we had 25 concurrent viewers or so, maybe 20 concurrent viewers Sunday morning for our services. But we've also got, you know, a family of six and a family of seven uh, at Bridge Creek. And so if those only account for two views, that's 13 people uh, within just those two views. Um, you know, we've got several families of, of four uh, watching. And, and so you you don't know um the only thing you do know is that your reach stops once you stop doing something right and i it i'm glad i'm not glad this has happened but i'm glad to see some of the changes we're making in light of it happening uh and i just i i hope some of it's going to die down and i'm not suggesting that you know, people ought to feel awful if some of the things that they're doing stop as a result of this ending. You know, there's only, uh, there's only so many hours in a day. There's only so many resources we can dedicate. I mean, some of the stuff I'm doing will have to slow down necessarily because I won't have as much time to do them. I probably won't put out a video like every day, like I did last week. I think I put out four or five videos last week. I probably won't do that. Um, but if I completely stop everything that I've done as a result of this pandemic, as a result of the, the uh, newfound time, then I've probably messed up in some way. I've definitely missed an opportunity that, that I was given to reach out to people. So it's, it's been good to see um, these congregations reach out in different ways. Uh, Sort of the baseline has become streaming. Um, and a lot of congregations are doing a lot more than that. Uh, I saw uh, a friend of mine has an uncle who stepped down from his local eldership uh, to uh, to tend to some 
you know, health issue. He's got some health issues and he felt like that made him unfit. I, I don't know what the, the full story is, but I, I know that he stepped, uh, he stepped down and it was health related. And, you know, when an elder steps down in good standing with the congregation, especially if they've been there for a while, you'll typically have some sort of celebration or at least, you know, some sort of brief ceremony, maybe after a service to honor them, you know, right. Uh, elders are due double honor, right? Um, Certainly. And, and you want to express that in some way. That's not just some sort of internal thing that you, you, you know, you sort of nod at them twice instead of once. Now, you, you want to recognize them somewhere. Um, well, hard to do that in a pandemic. Uh, and so what the, uh, what the congregation did is what, uh, is what I, I was telling you Kelsey did last week or was going to do last week where they all loaded up in their cars. The members loaded up in their cars and they all drove by his house and waved at him and honked their horns and all this stuff. Um, you know, that's a, that's a simple thing. Uh, and I noticed they had a police officer leading the charge as it were, because it was a fairly lengthy line of cars and there was a car on the in the other lane that pulled over and probably had no idea why he was pulling over to watch people wave at some guy sitting in a lawn chair in the middle of his driveway. <laughs> but you know, it's it's things like that. It's being creative with it. Um, uh, you know, it those are the types of things that that will that that's the sort of thing that will very obviously change as far as how that's done post pandemic. Um, that's not preferable to having some sort of ceremony and having something where you can shake his hand or give him a hug or whatever. But, you know, being creative and being more considerate of, you know, people who are in need, frankly. So, um, yeah, that's, that's something that, uh, if you're doing that, don't stop doing it. Um, don't 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 just stop doing all of these different things you're you've been doing as a result of this. So, right. Well, as a closing shot, um, I don't like NT Wright's article that he published. Ah, yes. Um, uh, it is bad. Your, he should feel bad. What what is uh, so? To be clear, you're talking about the article he published yesterday via Time.com. Yes. Um, what don't you like about it? Uh, this is an article, by the way, entitled Christianity offers no answers about the coronavirus. It's not supposed to. Uh, well, firstly, it's, um, it is a, it is a, probably a exhibit a that I would point people to if I were to ask them about like evangelicalese or Christianese that doesn't actually say anything while managing to take up several pages. Um, I can't stand Christianese. I can't stand all of that, which I know comes as a shock from someone like me who writes the way I do. I, do. I was about to say I does, but um, no, I gotcha. I gotcha. <laughs> I wasn't going to point it out and I still won't. Yeah. Well, I, I, I robbed it of its power, but uh, so there's that, um, which is kind of disappointing from Indy, right? Cause I, I don't dislike Indy, right? I have a lot of disagreements with them. Uh, because I tend to be on the on the reformers side of the Paul debates, um, and I and spoiler, I think Paul would tend to be on the reformer side of the Paul debates. But that's getting into some weeds that 
we don't have the time or space to get into. But more to the point, it also, uh, some people get uh, a little more activated about it than others. I know James White, who uh, gets activated a lot, uh, said that this is the kind of thing that you write once you classify inerrancy as a silly American doctrine. But more specifically in reading it, uh, and just talking about a lament especially, um, in saying like, well, Christianity has no answers for this, but uh, we should lament. We should we should cry out, how long, O oh Lord? And okay, I, I agree to an extent that the Christian response should be to lean upon Christ and to call out to God for comfort. Uh, I wrote an article that I think kind of lays out some of that, but one, he doesn't offer practical how-tos for that, and two, the laments of the biblical authors also recognize God's hand in their circumstances. Um, Isaiah is not unaware of God's role in bringing the Assyrians against Israel. Jeremiah is not unaware of God's role in bringing about the destruction of Jerusalem. And we can talk about uh, how God works through various means and the like to to bring things about and how that interacts with causality and the like in the actual world. But any response to tragedy that doesn't incorporate the fact of God's sovereignty and involvement in his creation and his intention to bring out of that the highest good, which for Christians is conformity to Christ, is I think it's insufficient and it's, again, it just becomes Christianese that people will read and say, oh, they, you know, that that makes me feel good, and then they don't do anything with it. Right. Well, I I think I probably, I wasn't just a huge fan of the article, but I think I probably uh, took a slightly different view of it than you did. Um you know, I, I, I agree with basically everything you just said uh, with regard, especially to uh, God's sovereignty, you know, because you, you mentioned in the article you wrote a little over a week ago, uh, what, you know, is it any better if God allows something rather than causes it? Um, you know, how, how is that better? It, functionally speaking, it's, it's not. It doesn't change my situation. Um, I still have to deal with it. And I still have to rely on God to get me through it. Um, but when it, when it comes to this, uh, I, I think the one thing, and he, I don't think he ever uses the term, uh, in the article, but the one thing he was trying to push back against was some sort of clean cut theodicy. Oh, no, um, of course. and that's, I think what, what most Christians struggle with, uh, at this point in time is, you know, the, the question we always ask, uh, why do good things happen or why do bad things happen to good people? Uh, and why to make it more personal, why is this happening to me now? Um, you know, why, why am I going through this? And people will want to come up with a clean cut, the odyssey where you can answer that question within uh, a sentence or two. And biblically you can't do it. Um, no, no, of course. And uh, you can't even start to answer it because there's a flawed premise that uh, if I point it out, will make a lot of people very upset. So uh, we'll just, we'll leave that one on the table. No, I, I, I want it brought to the forefront. You're not good. Um, yeah, correct. You're, you're not good. Romans 
uh, three, nine through 20 and that stack of verses make it clear. You, you don't, you know, you, you do deserve this. Uh, now, granted, do you particularly deserve this? Um, sure. That's the where you have to be made. Where you have been extra bad or something or, or, uh, you know, it, it, no, um, you know, you don't necessarily deserve it more or less than anyone around you based on your circumstances. Uh, but you're, you're claiming you deserve something you don't, or rather you don't deserve something you do uh, when you couch good in that question. Um, so yeah, no, we're not going to leave that on the table. Cause I, I think that's fundamental. Uh, you know, when, when you start to understand that, you know, the blessings that you get from God, which include your health, which we think is a blessing when we have it, and we think is a right when we don't, um, you know, those are all blessings that you don't deserve. Uh, you've not done anything to deserve them. You've done things that would merit uh, the removal of them from you. Um, but, you know, be, beyond that, like I said, with this, this theodicy, this idea, I, you know, he could have been a little bit more concrete and definitely a little bit more uh, practical, which I think is something that N.T. Wright struggles with in general. Right, um, and I try not to be too hard on him because I also struggle with the practical, so. Well, it, it's something where you don't necessarily have to have a special section dedicated to it like we sometimes do in our sermons, and I'm just as guilty of that as anyone. Um, but... At the same time, you know, when you throw all this scripture at me and he, he throws several and I can appreciate using a ton of scripture uh, in an article on time.com. Um, you know, I can appreciate all that, but uh, it, it, it's if you're telling me that, OK, my job is to simply lament. Well, I don't think my role is to just simply lament. Um I, I, I think there's more I can be doing in light of everything that's going on. Um, you know, he, he, I'm looking at the closing paragraph here. He says, it is no, no part of the Christian vocation than to be able to explain what's happening and why. Um, I agree with that to an extent. Um, I wouldn't say it's no part, uh, especially the what's happening. You know, uh, you know he, in the same paragraph, he talks about scientific understanding well that's part of explaining what's happening um and and i get he means more spiritual implications when he talks about what's happening but i i, I don't know he's he's very uh, like you said he christianese is a word i think i've i've typically used the word fluffy to describe this sort of talking it's it, it's a whole bunch of sweet sounding nothing um, you know, and I, I can appreciate the need to lament, but that's not my only role in all this. Um, you know, lamenting in and of itself is not part of the fruit of the spirit, for example, which, uh, you know, maybe that's a very nitpicky critique, but I think it's an important one here. Right? Uh, N.T. Wright probably doesn't think that Paul actually wrote Galatians anyway. Who, I, I would actually be genuinely surprised if. N.T. Wright were to come out and be like, no, Paul didn't write Galatians. That would be wild. But um, more seriously, 
I actually, and this will shock no one that knows me, including you, Chris. I actually, I decided to head over to desiringgod.org. And uh, I happened to like something that John Piper wrote. Again, story of the century. Stop the press and Sam Glover likes something John Piper wrote. But uh, coronavirus and Christ, behold the kindness and severity of God. I, I read that earlier today after reading Wright's article, and I vastly preferred Piper's take. Well, without having read it, I imagine uh, Piper's is more approachable um, than, than Wright's is uh, in a lot of ways and probably a lot more straightforward. Well, it's very Piperian. Okay, so... You understand what that means, and I think I understand what you understand when you say that, but um, I'm not convinced that most people listening to this will. What 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 in the world is that word you just made up? Okay, well, Piperian uh, is, uh, it is adjectival. It's the adjectival form of Piper, and referring to things that are like or very in conformity with Piper's essence and style. For example... Uh, the uh, second paragraph opens with the phrase, or two sentences, our voice is grass, his is granite. Um, and that's a very, uh, again, Piperian line that uh, people often forget. In addition to his doctorate in theology from Munich, uh, uh, John got a degree in English once upon a time. So he, mm -hmm. he really enjoys poetry and wording and rhyming. So there's a lot of that in his writing but uh, again i really enjoyed it i enjoy reading piper I, even when i disagree with him and there are issues that i disagree with him on i know that's that will surprise some but uh my it probably relieves some after after the past <laughs> five minutes at least so let alone you know your uh, your particular interests right so but um, more seriously, I would recommend reading that. Uh, Wright is worth reading because, again, there is value there. It's just you have to condense it down instead of just eating it like the meringue that it is. And Piper is a lot more like uh, eating grape nuts, his favorite uh, breakfast food, So, which I don't understand. I've never had grape nuts, and I hope I never do. But, uh, so two pieces, two different perspectives slightly. Both, I think, are worth reading, though. Thank you for listening to the Deep in the Tank podcast. We'll see you next time.